I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You've tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, the podcast that brings you monthly science fiction television discussions and interviews. Remember to follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US, and we're at Sci-Fi Fidelity. This is episode three for March of 2016, and my name is Mike. And I'm Dave, and in this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity, we'll be talking about Legends of Tomorrow on The CW and Hulu's foray into the scripted drama field with Stephen King's 112263. This month's discussion topic is going to focus on the 2016 Saturn Award nominations. And in the middle there, we'll also share with you our interview with showrunner from Colony on USA, Ryan Condal. And that's a show we've both been enjoying. So this is actually going to cover quite a few different types of shows, uh, the ups and downs of the genre world, <laughs> as it were. But before we get into that, for those who need to avoid spoilers by skipping certain segments, here are the time codes for today's topics. Legends of Tomorrow 135 11 1747 Colony Discussion and Interview 3737 The 2016 Saturn Awards 5509 All right, so if you're listening to this, you are caught up on Legends of Tomorrow because Dave and I will be being somewhat spoilery and not too terribly spoilery, but it is on episode seven right now, Dave, as we record this. Is that right? It is. And we're going to be talking about at least the first six, because I don't think either of us has seen episode seven. No. And we actually got to the point where we felt we had enough of a picture to make a judgment. And to be honest, Dave and I weren't the hugest of fans of this show, but we'll try and keep it positive. Yeah, I think both of us have agreed. You know, look, Mike and I have been podcasting together for almost four years, and we both feel really strongly, why podcast about something you don't like? Exactly. And even when we've had some rough patches where we chose something that didn't pan out the way we thought, we still basically look at it for what it is. And that's what we'll do here with Legends of Tomorrow, because it is a comics-based show from the DC universe. And we've come to discover that I think that a lot of these comics shows that are out there, Arrow and the flash and even agents of shield, which we love and agent Carter, they are all very different from each other, but also very different from other offerings in the genre world, specifically science fiction, such that it really needs its own category. Right. And I think what I'm afraid of is, and, and it shouldn't surprise me because all levels of television do this once there's success in one area it's a big pile on to see who can throw as much out there to the audience as possible. And I think that's what's happening with the comic book world now. Oh, my gosh, especially in the cinema. But yeah, even with TV and specifically with the DC properties crossing over a bit. And we'll talk about some of the appearances we saw in Legends of Tomorrow. 
But let's talk about what this show is all about. And of course, most of the audience out there knows that this is the third offering from the CW following the arrow and the flash. And those are both successful shows taking some of the minor characters that appeared on those shows. And some of them may have even been introduced specifically to include them on legends of tomorrow, uh, such as Ray Palmer. I feel like he was one of those ones that maybe was introduced so that we would recognize him in the show later. Right. And you were nice. You called them minor characters. Yeah. Well, because it's kind of a lineup of superheroes that the movies would not really want to deal with. <laughs> second tier. Okay, even second tier. I might even go as far as call them second rate. But, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I know I'm a little harsh, and I know a lot of people like this show. And I got to be honest, when I learned that Arthur Darville was going to be the ship's captain, I, I was excited because, look, I mean, obviously... Uh, I loved him in Doctor Who. I loved him in in Broadchurch, which was not a genre show at all. So I was a little excited and I'm a little underwhelmed so far. Yeah, not only by the actor himself and the writing he has to deal with, and I think it does have a lot to do with the writing, but also the nod towards the Time Lords of Doctor Who with the Time Masters here in this show. It really wasn't funny, even from the start. And it certainly kind of got stale after a while, especially from his rebellious standpoint, where it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense for him to be fighting the battle that he's fighting. It's really just a personal thing for him. Yeah. I mean, he he uses the excuse, if you will, that he is trying to save the world from Vandal Savage. But at the heart of it is he's trying to get revenge for the deaths of his wife and his child. And really, that's the opening credits voiceover that we get each week. So clearly that's the impetus for the entire show. But along for the ride are, as I mentioned, Ray Palmer, a couple of thugs, Leonard Snart and Mick Rory, who made quite a few appearances way back. And of course, Sarah Lance herself, the White Canary, is uh, central to this one. And also central to The Flash is Firestorm, right? Absolutely. Professor Martin Stein and his new sidekick, what's his name? Uh, Jefferson, right? Right. I had to remember there for a minute. And then Hawkman and Hawkgirl. I actually had not seen this. I'm not too deep into Arrow as you are. And they were introduced in that show, I assume? Yes. And here they are in this one, such as they are. Yeah, (laughs) such as they are. And so obviously he's assembled this team. And, 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 you know, you mentioned the the connection to Doctor Who and the Time Lords and how could you not make it? And you wonder, why would you choose arthur darville knowing that some of us aren't going to be able to get away from that connection and is it the writing is it the actor i i think we agree on that it's probably the writing because he's a fine actor i've seen that many times as have you exactly and the motivation doesn't get reinforcement and so it kind of falls flat and he ends up having to just bring the team along for their own reasons and putting out fires all the time and avoiding some of the uh, pitfalls, such as the pursuit of his own team. The Time Masters have sent Kronos, a bounty hunter, who every once in a while shows up to introduce a little conflict. Right, because at the end of the day, Rip Hunter's a renegade, right? Exactly. So it's very interesting concept-wise, and I'll tell you, we'll get to some of the strengths that we thought really worked, but what were your general impressions of this before we get to the high points for us? Well, again, I guess my problem is 
singly, I don't like any of the characters. Yeah. I don't like any of the superheroes. I'm not a fan, really, of any of the actors. I mean, to be quite honest, Martin Stein is about the only character I kind of like. And even his character, I'm just lukewarm about. Okay, yeah. And I agree. I think some of the actors themselves are phoning it in, perhaps because of their stilted language and cliche things that they have to utter. But I actually really like specifically the character of Leonard Snart, who I really didn't care for, especially because of his affected voice. And I thought it would get to me in this one, but I actually kind of got used to it and he ended up being my favorite character. Well, he may be my favorite character as well, but I'm still not used to the voice. And (laughs) that's something that we've got to put on the, the director to a large extent. Because I'm, I've seen the actor on talk shows, so I know he doesn't talk like that all the time. <laughs> yeah. Well, neither of them do, Snart or Rory. I was a big fan of Prison Break when they were in that show, and very different voices and mannerisms in that show. I mean, they're basically putting on a comic book character. And the, I think the main problem I had with the two of them always has been their fire and ice weapons just kind of are for show and really don't really do that much, (laughs) you know, not much of a superpower. Right. And the fact that they're both criminals and that they're constantly looking to score gets old really fast. So what the writers fortunately have done is to mix up the pairings. And I think that's the strength of the show so far is that once they find the correct pairings, and I understand you can't have the same pair every week. Right. But once you split them up, for instance, one of my favorite pairings is with Snart and Ray. Oh, yeah. The Russian spy episode where Ray is sent in to use his scientific knowledge to get with the Russian scientist. And he fails miserably just because he's not as socially suave as Leonard. And I like the fact that, you know, here's this brilliant, probably billionaire And this street criminal, uh, you know, maybe not real low level, but he's not a big kingpin. And yet he has to be the one to save the day, really. Right. And that episode had a couple of interesting pairings. Uh, The other one would be Mick with Ray, because Mick is just wondering why Ray cares about anything other than self-preservation. And then Mick ends up covering for Ray, much to the chagrin of his partner, Snart. Right. Now, you know, you mentioned the Russian storyline and look, so far what the show is all about traveling through time to find Vandal Savage. So, you know, we've got the one episode, they end up uh, in Russia during the Cold War and we've got the female Russian spy. And I'm thinking, really? (laughs) Okay, she's attractive. I get it. But I I don't know. It's I'll tell you what was good about that, because they very easily could have gotten into bad guy of the week, jumping from place to place. But it does seem to be unified pretty well when they went from the 70s to the 80s and they had accidentally revealed Firestorm and caused Vandal Savage to want to develop his own version of that. And the piece of Ray Palmer's suit that got left behind, that was another piece as well. So I like how there's some unity between the episodes so that it doesn't end up just being episode of the week. Well, that's true. Uh, You know, the humor, you know, is, I would say, a strong point. There are some funny, funny lines. 
mostly from Snart, to be fair. Oh, yeah. He gets to my favorites, the one in the premiere episode about telling Sarah Lance, you know, we go out for one lousy drink and you pick a fight with Boba Fett. And there are several pop culture type references that bring a chuckle to the audience. But my favorite by far was when they were taking the Russian translation pill so that they could speak with the Russian spies. And <laughs> Leonard wanted to bone up on his Russian. So he says, Gideon, bone me. <laughs> just well delivered, just so deadpan. And and Snart really does steal the show because he gets all those funny lines. But, you know, I, I guess at the end of the day, the fact that everything centers around the quest to capture Vandal Savage, who really has not been fleshed out too well. And, and maybe he never will be. Maybe he will continue to be this one-dimensional bad guy. I hope not. Yeah, he does seem to be a little bit one-dimensional. He's not really motivated by much other than just pure world domination and evil. So I want him to be a little bit more nuanced. All right. Well, speaking of nuanced, what do you think about the character so far? Do you like Prince Kofu and Kendra? Oh, well, you bring up my least favorite, too, in the entire ensemble. <laughs> yeah, I was not disappointed to see him go. No. In fact, uh, Kendra, still even six or seven episodes in, is just now starting to get anything really going for her. And now I'm thinking back. I don't know that she really has anything other than the really cool scene between her and Sarah where they were training together. And they both had some insights into each other's character. That was another interesting pairing. We talked about the pairings. But other than that, she really hasn't done much to move her character forward or move the story forward. Right. And I liked Sarah Lance kind of in Arrow. I wasn't a big fan of the whole bringing her back from the dead storyline. Well, but. it had a, a good effect for this show because, of course, it brings on that bloodlust the Lazarus pit has just inflamed her now. And that's a struggle that she's dealing with. So that I think is an interesting thing for her. I just don't like the look that that character has. I mean, white canary, more like dingy dishwater canary. <laughs> that yeah. What's with the outfit? Yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> uh, but and the other thing that strikes me and, and, Look, maybe it's the nature of the team that they've put together, because I, I don't want to say this is like the island of misfit toys or anything <laughs> like that, but it's like nobody seems to be able to follow a directive. That's true. And somehow that's a surprise to Rip Hunter that his team is hard to keep cohesive. That shouldn't be a surprise to him at all. <laughs> uh, no, it shouldn't. I mean, he's the one that put the team together. He knew what he was getting into, you would think. But I guess my problem so far is that there have been no consequences for not following orders. I mean, look, when you put a team like this together, you can't have the underlings second guessing your orders. And that's all that, that happens every week. Yeah. And what that comes across as is very juvenile and a storyline that is based on the good moments between the characters, just as much as it is about the petty arguments, which can be a little bit wearing. But there was one scene that you mentioned to me one time that I really liked the one where Snart returns to his childhood home. Remember where he meets his younger self? I mean, it was fun enough when Professor Stein met his younger self in the 70s, but I really liked when Snart met his younger self so that he could try to affect his own past. Right. And, you know, we get the scene with his father and stealing, what was it, an emerald, I believe? Yeah, trying to prevent him from stealing it by stealing it himself and just handing it over. Well, because he remembers that the family dynamic changed at that point. He wouldn't have been beaten as much. His mother wouldn't have been beaten as much if that could just be avoided. 
I think it kind of ignores the fact that it probably made him who he is, but Snart really does have that soft spot inside. And I think it comes up several times in the, in the show. Right. Which brings up, I guess, a fundamental problem that I have, and that is with the rules of time travel. Okay. Right. That he continually points out, you know, when we go into the future, don't worry about it. Don't try to save people. Don't try to change things because once we go back, none of that will have happened. Right. Well, that's only in the future. So you're talking about when they accidentally crash in the future Star City, which was a very interesting episode, which was kind of an interesting premise that I thought was going to be much more explosive than it ended up being. But you're right. If they change things in the Star City of the future and they plan on going back to 2016 anyway, then why do they care so much about it? And no matter how much Rip explains that to him, they continue to be concerned for people like Oliver and Connor. Yeah, because if that's the way they feel, why not hop down to 2016 and kill the people that are going to be responsible for this future and be done with it? But the time travel rules are basically all over the map. I mean, you have Professor Stein, where he almost doesn't meet his wife and the wedding ring disappears and reappears. And they're just none of them are consistent with each other. I mean, like Rip Hunter, he's the one going back into his past. So why isn't his future point zero rather than the recruitment of the team yeah it's just it's there's no consistency to it no but at the end of the day (laughs) i don't think i will be continuing with legends of tomorrow uh yeah and again i know i'm in the minority the ratings have been okay I, i don't know that we've heard a renewal notice for it yet but it won't surprise me if it does get season two it gets pretty good ratings from most reviewers on the internet So maybe it's me. Yeah. I mean, the Den of Geek reviewers have been very kind to it as well. So Dave and I may be in the minority. We did notice that as a podcast that's called Sci-Fi Fidelity and not Comics Fidelity, that we do tend to be partial to sci-fi. And we do have our favorites in the comics world. But we're starting to realize that some of the things that our listeners might be interested in are not necessarily the thrust of our podcast. And so that's a learning thing for us. As Les Claypool would say, they can't all be zingers. Exactly. So if you've come to this area of the time code in the podcast, we are talking about 11.22.63 on Hulu, the first three episodes. And this one we really have enjoyed. And it's being delivered on a platform that not too many people have gotten into. I mean, Amazon streaming and Netflix have really been the dominant figures here. But what a great offering from Hulu airing on Mondays uh, starting in February. Yeah, and I really like the fact that they're not dumping the entire season at once. Yeah, good point. They're actually separating them by a week. And as a podcaster, obviously, it makes our job a lot easier. But with a show that's at all thought-provoking, I mean, it gives you time to think about it. I mean, look, we've said many times we're fortunate to work together. We're fortunate to actually work very close by so that we talk to each other many times during the course of the day and and you know we bounce these ideas off each other all the time as i'm sure a lot of people do with their friends yeah they want to be able to have the water cooler talk and binge watching which was our very first bonus topic back in january doesn't allow for that and so yeah yeah, we really liked the delivery of 11 because this does have consistent time travel rules and they're very complex but They're consistent within themselves. So it's not like we're saying that time travel rules have to follow a specific set, but once you've defined them, you got to stick to them. 
Right. Now, this one premiered on February 15th, 2016. We're recording this on Monday, March 7th. So the fourth episode just dropped today. Right. So we actually haven't seen that, whereas many of our audience members might have seen it. But we get a pretty good spread for these first three episodes because you got the one episode that introduces the concept. That's part one, the rabbit hole. Then you've got episode two, which is the alternate thing that he can change in the past, which is the plight of his friend from his present. And that's part two, the kill floor. Right. And that was set up really well in episode one. And that's in Kentucky. And then in part three, they head back to Dallas to get started on the real mission again with Lee Harvey Oswald. So these are very different uh, episodes and present different stories that, you know, you can see a clear direction for the show. Right. So if you don't already know, the, the premise is that Chris Cooper, who runs a diner in this small town. Al Templeton. Al Templeton has discovered that his back room i guess it's a storeroom mm-hmm. if you continue back far enough there's a time portal that takes you to october 17th 1960 and that once you go there no matter how long you stay in 1960 when you return to 2016 only two minutes have elapsed yeah and this is pure stephen king there's no explanation of the science of it you're not supposed to question it it's just is what it is and you have to play within those rules. <laughs> right. So we've got Chris Cooper playing Al Templeton, and we don't get to see enough of him. And I, I don't know whether we're going to see any more of him. I, I guess not, obviously. But he was really a great character in episode one. He set the stage for James Franco, who is a high school English teacher. The two of them, I don't know that they're necessarily best friends, but they're certainly good friends. I like James Franco a lot in this. And prior to this, yeah, James Franco was okay. I liked him in, uh, what was it, uh, Geeks and... Freaks and Geeks. Freaks and Geeks. <laughs> well, he definitely is good in this one. I think he was instrumental in getting the show made, actually. I think he was a big a proponent of that. But yeah, he plays a great Jake. He does buy into the concept awfully quickly, but narratively, that's very nice so that we can get right to it. He does his little bit of what is this craziness? Why do you want to go back and save Kennedy? And it's just kind of taken on faith. The fact that Al Templeton has done this mission for many years, developed it himself. If only we could save Kennedy from being assassinated, the world wouldn't have gone to the crapper like it is. And so he is tracing it back to that one event. And we're just not meant to question that, Dave. I mean, you could say that saving Kennedy might not end up saving anything. He says it has a lot to do with stopping Vietnam and other things, but it is a lot to hang your hat on. Well, right, it is. And I think the irony that the audience realizes pretty quickly and that Jake certainly, I think, realizes by episode two is that to make this happen, in other words, prevent JFK from being assassinated, the Vietnam War from escalating and all that, he's going to have to kill somebody or else he's going to have to contract somebody to kill somebody. Yeah, which is no mean feat. And in the first three episodes, we already see that Jake can and does have the guts to pull the trigger on somebody, which is surprising for an English teacher. (laughs) I don't know about you, Dave. Right. Now, I guess you could argue that he could prevent this from happening without killing, but, but it does seem as if they're setting that idea out there front and center that that 
somewhere along the road, that's going to have to happen. If Oswald is responsible, the solution is to kill him. That's what they're saying. And the thing that I love that's also very Stephen King about this show is that just like with The Shining or Christine, the thing that we're dealing with is sentient. And in this case, it's time itself, which does not want to change. It resists tampering with. And so it pushes back is the way that Al Templeton puts it. Yeah. And I, having read the book, I actually read the book in 2011 when it first came out. And it just is illustrated very well in the novel, but they do a great job of depicting it in episode one when Jake tries to make some changes in Dallas. So really great way to show that he's going to have some difficulties beyond his own investigation. Yeah. And it is very cinematic. I mean, it feels like we're watching a movie and a lot of these eight to 10 episode scripted shows that outlets like Hulu, Amazon, Netflix are dropping seem to have that style as well. So I really like that. Well, especially since you mentioned it being a movie like, and it's shot that way, but it also kind of feels that way from the standpoint of having a very finite ending because they can't just keep going after the Kennedy assassination indefinitely. So although they haven't, although they haven't called it a limited series, it would seem to have a limited shelf life, two seasons, maybe three. I don't know. I mean, man in the high castle. Yeah, I wasn't expecting that to get a season two, and it did. Well, why don't we take a quick look at the three episodes? Part one, The Rabbit Hole, which we said aired on February 15th, 2016. One of the things that I liked was the commitment to detail that Chris Cooper's character, Al Templeton, has regarding his quest to prevent JFK's assassination. I mean, he's got documents. He's got the whole board in his room. Yeah. And I forget what you call it, you know, where you've got the the strings going from one event to another event. And oh, the red yarn, which features prominently in the opening credits as well. Right. And of course, you mentioned it already. He asks Jake to accept that he has a time portal in the diner's closet. (laughs) To be fair, once Jake goes through, it's a little hard to deny. Exactly. He sees the evidence for himself. And I like the details that As he goes through, he sees it multiple times. The milkman always drops the milk, for example. Right. Now, you've read the book. I have not. So one of the things that struck me, caught my eye in this first episode, each time that Jake goes through, there's the guy with the little yellow card on his hat that tells him you don't belong. And of course, I'm thinking about, oh, is this a freelancer, a time cop, a time lord? (laughs) Yeah. And I hope I'm not revealing too much of a spoiler by saying that in the novel, we never really do get an answer about Yellow Card Man. So I assume that the show is not going to give us many answers on that score as well. But yeah, I think it's just an embodiment of time itself. Because we see the same phrase, you don't belong here, from the dying girl in episode two as her Or was that, no, that was episode one where she ran over the phone booth quite dramatically and her dead form said, you don't belong here. Right. Now, in episode one, when Jake gives up on the JFK story, stops in Kentucky to prevent the murder of custodian Harry Dunning's family at the hands of his father. Okay, that's cool. And then certainly that leads to my question. What's it going to take to make Jake realize that the timeline doesn't want to be messed with? And you already alluded to that. That's something that I really like the way they handled that aspect of time travel. And I think he's learning, as we saw in episode two, when he does deal with Harry Dunning's father, 
he does have to fight some of the things that time is throwing at him and is successful to a certain degree. Although I don't think time is pushing back quite as hard in that episode. But what I liked about this first episode was that although there was a lot of exposition to get through, they really did speed through a big chunk of the story. People talked about the pacing of that one being a little bit slow, but I thought it was quite nice that we were able to get Harry Dunning's backstory, the intro to the time portal, the gambling plot, which featured in the novel where he almost got roughed up by the guys he was earning money from illicitly by betting on the boxing match. Well, he bet too much money. Yeah, he did. It was too obvious. Yeah. And the time pushing back concept and beginning the Oswald investigation all in one episode is a lot of stuff. But the reverence for this era, and you know Stephen King almost idealizes the past in his novels with food tasting better, cars are perfect, people are dressed better, they're groomed better, they act better towards each other, everything's cheaper. So I like that aspect of it too, the glorifying of the past. But my one question actually that all that leads to is how are they going to keep it from becoming an Oliver Stone-like exploration of JFK, the assassination conspiracy theories and everything like that? Because don't you feel like it's going to get into the nitty gritty and maybe they could either get their facts wrong or it could end up being red herrings all over the place? Yeah, because this is one historical event that, well, certainly people our age and even younger know so much about. I mean, there have been so many things. I mean, you you mentioned Oliver Stone, of course, but there have been so many documentaries, so many books written about this event that how do you not repeat what's already been done? Yeah, it's going to be tough. Right. Now, episode two takes a detour because he meets this janitor at a school and it looks like Jake must be teaching an adult GED class and Harry is the pupil of which he's most proud for graduating. And once he realizes through this story that Harry wrote for class that as a child, his father murdered his mother, murdered the other members of his family, and it was just a miracle that he survived. Well, now Jake's got the opportunity to prevent that from ever happening. Yeah, and it might even prevent him from being damaged himself because he seems to have some mental issues as well that were as a result of the beating. So, yeah, just prevent all of that heartache that, that Harry has had to deal with. And I like that it's got its own plot line as he has to establish himself in Kentucky. Yeah, but what is so brilliant about it is that he does have to kill Harry's father. And then we figure that once he returns to 2016 to the present, he's going to have to go back and kill him again. Yeah. And it makes me wonder, is it going to be easier the second time around where he's just going to be able to pull out a gun and and pop him and move on with his Kennedy mission? And if it is, that says quite a bit about the developing character of Jake. It does. And also does time become more malleable the more you do something like that? Right. Now, one of the other things I like in this episode, he gets confronted by uh, Bill and he just says, yeah, fine. I'm a time traveler. Yeah. Well, Bill discovers the Kennedy newspaper article from 1963. So, yeah, he has the evidence before him. Right. Now, fundamental question I have, why doesn't Jake just buy a more nondescript car instead of that flashy (laughs) yellow and brown thing he's driving around, which is a beautiful automobile? Especially in Kentucky, it's very conspicuous. Exactly. Well, the things I liked was that there was a shift in the mood from episode one to basically allow Jake 
to have a proof of concept. If I can do this for Harry Dunning, then maybe I'll be able to do Kennedy. And, you know, it also develops his character. The whole idea of Harry Dunning's father heaping his abuse on Jake himself as well, trying to get him to kill that cow. It actually spoke to, you know, is Jake going to be able to do this where he has to kill another human being? Because if he can't kill the cow, how is killing, you know, killing someone despicable might be one thing, but killing Lee Harvey Oswald in cold blood is a, is another. Right. And I guess you could argue, well, killing the cow, the cow didn't do anything, but on another level, the cow's going to die anyway. Yeah, exactly. So I thought that would bring up the idea that Jake was going to have trouble pulling the trigger, but he certainly didn't when it came to actually getting rid of Harry's father. So the way Harry's father acts towards Jake as a stranger and with his wife, who obviously could never have taken that prize vacation that Jake tried to use rather than killing Harry Dunning, you know, if you get the kids and the wife out of the picture, then he can't kill them. Maybe that would be better. But that doesn't work in a very realistic way. But now that he's proven he can pull the trigger, will he be able to do it more easily next time after the time resets? And will it make it easier for him to do so with Oswald? Right. And if he does that, is he going to discover along the way that it might be one of these cases where, fine, you take out Oswald and then there's somebody else that takes his place? Exactly. There's a bigger picture at play. Yep. All right. And then episode three, Other Voices, Other Rooms, which aired on February 29th, 2016. We leaped to 1962. And I did like the fact that Bill readily believes Jake about being from 2015 or 2016. I forget what he says he's from. Because granted, he's got the newspaper clipping. And I guess in you know our day and age, it'd be no big deal to make your own newspaper clipping, say whatever you want it to say. Well, you know, one logic that you could apply there is that time has passed. It's been two years since he arrived in 1960. So it could just be that Bill has had time to get used to the idea. Yeah. Uh, I like that he starts off as a rube and gradually becomes an important part of the puzzle. Now, I've never read the book, but I've got to wonder if the burgeoning relationship with Sadie is going to be called. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. ...to bring her into the plan. Ah, very nice. And of course, I will not reveal anything on that score, but that's an interesting thought. I actually also have honed in on Sadie as a detail that I really liked. The chemistry specifically between Jake and Sadie, very believable. But what I thought was interesting, you thought maybe bringing her, her in on the plan, 
But his leaving her to chaperone that dance alone was not only predictable, but it actually didn't lessen how excruciating it felt to see him do that. And so I feel like he'll probably be doing that kind of thing a lot, messing things up with their relationship. But then on the flip side of that, she doesn't want to play games. Wasn't it refreshing to see her plant one on him so that we didn't have to have that drawn out? (laughs) And she even says to him that, I forget her exact language, but there's no reason at this point in our lives, we've both been married before. Cut to the chase. (laughs) Exactly. Got to say the level to which they bug Oswald's apartment was pretty cool. Uh, The attic escape scene, a little bit far-fetched, but eh, I'm okay with that. That was time pushing back. I kept expecting them to fall through the ceiling. (laughs) Yeah, they were having to stay on the joists. All right. Now, why not kill Jack Ruby? Yeah, that was interesting because one of the things I liked was that time pushing back was lessened during the Harry Dunning plotline, but it should be stronger when it comes to Kennedy. So the fact that Jack Ruby made a cameo appearance would seem to be against what time like time should be keeping that kind of coincidence from even happening. <laughs> right. And and I guess you could argue, well, Jack Ruby kills Oswald after the fact, which obviously is true, but so he's not as important. So time doesn't care, but he's part of this larger conspiracy and, and Jake's got to be aware of all that. And, and the further he gets into this, there's just so many aspects to it. Now, one of the things I really liked, Daniel Weber is portraying, Lee Harvey Oswald, not someone I knew before this show, but he has done a spot on portrayal, especially of the mannerisms and the speech, the wiry musculature, but specifically at the General Walker rally where they're trying to keep an eye on him, whether or not Lee Harvey Oswald pulled the trigger on this guy eventually. He obviously was upset at General Walker calling him a fascist, but that accent and the speech impediment that we associate with Lee Harvey Oswald was spot on. But one question I actually had, because they're moving forward with this mission, wasn't much of Al Templeton's research destroyed in the fire when he was originally in Dallas in the first episode? It looked like there was a lot more of the book intact in episode three yeah, than when it burned in episode two. So he's having to deal with a lot. I mean, the fact that he knew when Lee Harvey Oswald was going to be returning from Russia, when he was going to be moving from Fort Worth to Dallas, that's some pretty minute details to have committed to memory. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think at this point, though, he's learned his lesson that when he bets on sporting events, he'll bet less money this time. Yeah, lose every once in a while, too. Right, right. <laughs> but I like having Bill along for the ride. Bill, there was no character Bill in the novel, and Jake pretty much did everything on his own. And you can do that in a book because you can have the narrator, but you need someone to play off with in the story. And I really like how they're cooperating on this. And I like the spy gadgetry that they worked with to, like you said, bug the apartment. Yep. But again, contrary to Legends of Tomorrow, this is one that I am definitely going to stay with. And, oh, yeah. And to be quite honest, can't wait to see episode four tomorrow. Exactly. And in fact, 112263 and Colony from the USA Network have been my favorite recent entries into the sci-fi field. And we had this great opportunity to talk to one of the showrunners from Colony. Now, Ryan Condal, who we're going to be talking to here in a minute, 
is the co-showrunner with one Carlton Cuse, who I'm sure is immediately recognizable <laughs> as the lost showrunner. So not only do you have Carlton Cuse attached, but the main character, Josh Holloway, is in the starring role as Will Bowman, a former profiler who was coerced into working for the police force in the show. But the lost credibility that those two guys bring already says, you you know, you're going to have a nice conspiracy thriller. But besides that... Right. Now, the two of those were also the show creators as well, right? Yeah. Co-creators, co-showrunners. Exactly. And then Josh Holloway thrown in as a bonus. <laughs> but Josh Holloway plays Will Bowman, a former profiler, I think for the FBI. He's coerced into working for the Red Hats when he gets himself in trouble trying to sneak his son, who is on the other side of this giant wall in Los Angeles, they got separated during the arrival of this alien race. Now, the cool thing and the identifying factor of the show is that we never get to see the aliens that invaded. All we see is what they've put into place. Walls separating huge colonies from the rest of the, gosh, it must be a wasteland in the middle of the country. I'm not sure. We're not sure. Uh, but you also have a political structure in place, the occupying force, the human proxy government, as well as the resistance that's trying to fight against all odds against this hugely superior race of beings. Right. I think we're certainly supposed to think about the French during World War II, and, and you've got the human collaborators instituting the government for the aliens. And then, as you mentioned, you've got the resistance movement. And the interesting thing you mentioned, the reason he agrees to work with the collaborators, if you will, is because his one son is missing and this seems to be the only hope he has of actually reuniting the family with this son. Right. And his wife is played by Sarah Wayne Cayleys and Katie Bowman, a member of the resistance unbeknownst to Will. And she's motivated also by the search for her son, but they constantly walk the edge of discovering a multitude of secrets within their own fold and in danger of being discovered themselves. And that's what makes this one of the best conspiracy thrillers I've seen in recent memory. And there's just so much potential for storyline. You've got Bram Bowman, the young son who is still with his family, who has actually gotten beyond the wall. And we've seen a very small taste of what's beyond these colony walls and the wasteland that these aliens have created across the whole planet. And even Aunt Madeline, Katie's sister, who has her own life going on in the green zone as she tries to find insulin for her son and a better life for herself and her family as well. Right. And one of the little sub storylines that I find really fascinating is Bram and the teacher that he has that's got the telescope and they've got it trained on the moon. And, you know, they're trying to figure out what the heck are the aliens doing on the moon? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and they don't have a good enough lens yet. Shades of falling skies. Yeah. But yeah, and you mentioned the teacher that he, the tutor that they have that the government put in place and how that's starting to take a turn for some kind of religious aspect. I mean, there's just so many facets to the show. And we were only able to touch on a very small part of it with Mr. Condal, although you did mention the Vichy France feel to this proxy government. And that certainly is something that we touch on in the interview. But let's listen to our interview now, Ryan Condal. Uh, like I mentioned, co-created Colony along with lost producer Carlton Cuse. 
and they served together as showrunners as well. And we caught up with Ryan just after the news broke that the show had been renewed for a season two. So let's take a listen. Hello, Mr. Condal. Hi, guys. How's it going? Pretty good. First of all, I want to say congratulations on season two. How do you feel about that? <laughs> Thanks. I feel I feel tired. <laughs> um, it's uh, it's great to uh, have the show coming back. Uh, there's a lot of new ground that we want to cover and stories that we want to tell that came up either organically through the course of season one or as we've had some months away from the production now that we were thinking about that we're excited to sell for season two. Well, has the writing process already begun for season two? Uh, Imminently. We are in the process of hiring uh, a writing staff and then we will probably get to work uh, at the end of the month. Okay. All right. Well, why don't we talk about season one, since that's where we are now? Um, (laughs) You know, uh, obviously, science fiction television is, I think, in the middle of a renaissance. And and several versions of the alien invasion tale have aired. I mean, we got 2009's V, where the invaders appear to have humanity's best interests at heart. Of course, uh, Arthur C. Clarke's Childhood's End, where the overlords felt they were doing what was best for a human race, and then Falling Skies, where the aliens just want to wipe everybody out. But Colony takes a completely different approach. Could you like, tell us the story you're trying to tell and why you've made the decisions you've made that really set your show apart? Well, you know, we were fascinated with the idea, Carlton and I, of telling the um, anti-alien invasion story. So, you know, the joke was, is an alien invasion story, but you never see the aliens. And that was born out of this love of science fiction that we both have and the desire to create a new space within this alien invasion subgenre. I mean, just as The Walking Dead is another entry in the kind of long and storied zombie apocalypse subgenre of science fiction horror, terror, hysteric storytelling, uh, we see Colony as you know, entering into the lexicon of uh, alien invasion tales that probably began with um, War of the Worlds. And in order to have a place in that lexicon, you need to have something new to say. And we thought it was really fascinating to tackle this idea of the after. The invasion has already happened, we've already lost, and now let's tell the story of what happens next, which happens to lend itself very well to television both in budget and practical execution, because you don't have to visually depict an alien invasion, and in storytelling, because it allows you to tell this very long-form narrative uh, about the the survivors and the stories that they go through in this post-invasion world. And of course, one question I had about that is, why does the host care in this show whether or not families are reunited? Like, for morale's sake, why don't they just let people get back together afterwards? I mean, I th- you know, I think a lot of those things are sort of to be answered in the future, and there is a practical reason behind everything that's going on in the show, at least from the top on down, in the sense of the, the choices that the hosts made when they took over and, and colonized us. But, you know, my hint answer would be that there is a difference between the occupying force and the human collaborationist government that is put in charge. So, you know, if you imagine when the Nazis stormed into France and then they put in their own proxy governments and France had Vichy 
And the Nazis had their needs and said to them, look, this is what we need to happen. We're putting you guys in charge. As long as you meet X, Y, and Z metrics, we will be happy. If you don't, then we will get involved. So it's on them to, you know, uphold law and order within, within the block. And of course, that's what the story is about. It's about the kind of subjugation that humans will put other humans under in times of great stress and societal upheaval. And that was what Carlton and I were fascinated with, telling the story of the human villains in this world, which are the people that willingly, voluntarily, or in Will's case, are forced to collaborate with the traitors, the humans that have uh, gone against their own kind. Right, which is, I guess, kind of the beauty of the fact that we haven't seen what the hosts look like. And, and from what you're saying, we, we may not, maybe for a while, we don't really know what their true intentions are. So the not knowing kind of adds to the storytelling. Yes, I mean, that's, that's an intentional part of this. I mean, who doesn't love a good science fiction mystery? And our intent here is to put the audience in the shoes of the average Los Angeles colonist. So the questions that you are asking as a viewer are intended to be the same questions that Joe Los Angeles on the street is asking. And look, we all know that there are 300-foot walls surrounding the city. We all know there's curfew. There's a transitional authority, a collaborationist government. Uh, there are drones patrolling the skies. We know they respond to things like gunfire. We know they will keep the peace if aggravated, but we don't really know what they see or what they're doing or whether they're artificially intelligent or piloted by tiny alien pilots. We don't know any of that stuff, and neither do the people on the street. And that's those are the kinds of conversations that they're having at places like the Yonk. And we just think that that fog of war idea, which was very prevalent, uh, even with the Nazis in, in World War II in, in these occupied places, is part of the, excuse the word, romance of this kind of story. And another element we happen to notice is that there's a lot of secrets between the characters in the show. Uh, Will, Katie, their son Bram, even Aunt Maddie, <laughs> they all have secrets from each other. So how much of this story is also about the secrets and lies within a family, and is it all about just keeping each other safe, or is there more to it? Uh, I mean, it's layered. I mean, it's a gray world in terms of motivations and loyalties and who trusts who. And I mean, look, you have secrets from even the closest people in your life. It's just it's, an, it's a natural part of the human condition. And we were fascinated with the idea that in this world, secrets and who you trust and who you allow to trust you are such huge things now. I mean, they have these real life and death stakes around them and they're incredibly important. So you, you hide truths close to the best and it becomes a part of the post invasion trauma that these people are experiencing. You know, we heard stories out of ex Soviet Russia now, you know, 25 years after the death of communism and the fall of the wall, in Berlin, it's a condition of those living in ex-Soviet bloc states and in Russia itself that they are still just such an incredibly secretive and mistrustful people because of the trauma placed on them by the form of government that they experienced for 80 or 90 years. Well, yeah, and you mentioned form of government. You take a show like The Man in the High Castle where the resistance is very similar to the insurgency in Colony, and the occupiers similar to the collaborators, yet in Colony, 
the good guys and the bad guys are less clear cut. I mean, it, it almost seems like the collaborators in your show come across as more sympathetic while making those fighting for freedom a lot more brutal. <laughs> well, I think that will ebb and flow as season one unfolds, uh, so stay tuned. But yeah, I mean, we wanted to engage in complex storytelling. And the tendency, I think, in worlds like this for an audience is to see a science fiction setting and automatically assume, okay, it's Terminator, uh, it's man versus the machines, man is the ragtag resistance, uh, living in caves and fighting with slings and sharp sticks and whatever they can muster, and the machines are you know, solely bent on seeing our destruction. I love Terminator, but this world, we wanted to just add a layer of complexity to it. And a lot of that, I think, is about the difference between telling a long-form story on television versus telling a short-form feature-length story in a movie. I mean, to set up these incredibly gray movements and misdirect and play with audience expectation, it just takes a lot of time. And we have the, that's the one thing we have the luxury of on, on television. We don't have the luxury of, unfortunately, creating an army of uh, marauding endoskeleton robots. <laughs> so, uh, so we lean you know, to our strengths, which is the gray morality of the storytelling. And I mean, I love that you picked up on that because that's one of the things that I think we're really proud of this season. And I think it really comes into play. You know, there was a big shakeup in episode four with the death of Phyllis, the head of the counterinsurgency. And now we're really going to see, you know, what this resistance is all about and what's going on there and what they're up to and also what the transitional authority is really capable of. Yeah, and one of the things that the Transitional Authority has is this Rolodex, which apparently has <laughs> some implications beyond just, you know, looking up someone's profile on Facebook. Uh, what would you say are the implications of the existence of the Rolodex and the advanced recruitment of the Red Hats and Snyder having met the host ahead of their re- arrival? How far back did the host prepare for this takeover? Or will we find <laughs> that out? Uh the great thing about this show is that unlike Lost, which I loved as a fan but had nothing to do with creatively, but Carlton, my, my partner on the show, did, but Lost was based on the mystery of the world. I mean, it was very much in that sense, like, like Twin Peaks was really centered on the idea of living within a mystery, within a mystery, within a mystery. This show, the mysteries are mysteries only to the people that are experiencing them. So we have all the answers and they will be doled out over time. And I think the questions that you're asking are great. I mean, that that shows an engagement with the story and the mythology, but all those things are just really important to the continuing mystery of the show. And, you know, I would say with great confidence that they will be revealed in time. I was totally going fishing for <laughs> on that one. Um, and on a side note, I really miss Phyllis. She was a, yeah. a favorite. She was absolutely terrific. But, you know, the, the fact that everybody does miss her just is proof that she had to go because that it shakes <laughs> up the power dynamic and that she didn't overstay her welcome. Not that she would have. She was terrific. But that's great storytelling when you can pull somebody out of the mix like that in a way to shake up the uh, drama and piss all your fans off. Yes, indeed. Well, thanks very much, Ryan, for joining us today. Of course. And we really enjoyed talking about Colony with you. Great. Thanks. I uh, look forward to reading the article. Take care. That was quite an eye-opening interview for us uh, that was done a few weeks ago before we had seen some of the episodes that we saw now, but really enjoy the direction it's going. And there's a lot of things that I don't think we could even predict that are going to happen before it's all over. 
Yeah, I thought he was pretty forthcoming given the nature of what it is he's doing, which is providing <laughs> a thriller where he can't reveal too much. Exactly. So really looking forward to this. I hope if you are listening to this podcast and haven't checked out Colony, that you'll give it a try. Because like I said, probably one of the best offerings that we've had in the winter. And to be fair, Josh Holloway is great. He was great in Intelligence, which is a show that I thought died before its time and was never really given a chance. I agree. And he is really strong in this. And and the chemistry between he and his wife, it's different. But it's so good because there's a constant tension that we as the audience feel because he doesn't know that she's a member of the resistance. But it's as if they both sense something's wrong. Of course, she knows he's working for the Red Hats. But But she just doesn't know what he's up to because he seems to have a goal that's against just being a collaborator. He wants to get to his son and he's trying to use the system in a different way than she is. Right. And she keeps within her cell it's like, I'll keep going, but my husband and family go untouched. And we're thinking yeah. like, well, okay, they can agree all they want, but that's still going to be a source of tension. Yeah, well, that's the whole show. I mean, sure. It's basically built on that tension, and and it really is very effectively done. But our bonus topic today, we'll go ahead and move on to that to end up our podcast. We're talking about the 2016 Saturn Awards, and some of our favorite shows showed up on it, which kind of motivated us to discuss it as a topic. But Dave and I have always been interested in the Saturn Awards as a sci-fi award, because sometimes shows show up on it that aren't sci-fi. <laughs> right. Now, if you don't know, they're presented annually by the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror to honor top works in the genre field. So, you know, as Mike said, as we go through some of these topics and talk briefly about the shows that have been nominated you'll see what mike means (laughs) all right so why don't we jump in here best fantasy tv series game of thrones all right now i watch game of thrones you don't i do not and it deserves all the accolades it's gotten it moves a little slowly at times for my taste you go weeks without seeing some of your favorite characters but having said that it's a great show haven never seen never seen it and it just finished its final set of episodes i believe or is about to right jonathan strange and mr norrell now did you tell me you read the book i love that book that's one of my favorite books Susanna clark but strangely didn't even know it was a tv series <laughs> okay now outlander which is ostensibly a time travel tale that ronald d moore has adapted and i do watch it the time travel is minimal well, it's a bodice ripper. In yes, the <laughs> it is. But I really like it. it Why is that in this fantasy? Why is that not science fiction? Well, I guess because... Is it because the time travel is magically induced by that stone? I guess. Okay. But of the two I've seen, I'd have to go with Game of Thrones so far. All right. The Muppets, really? <laughs> yeah. What's that doing on there? All right. The Magicians, which I've seen the pilot and I liked it, but I haven't had time to go on. You're covering it, right? For Den of Geek. Exactly. And this is the thing. I actually was down on it. I've loved reading that trilogy uh, by Lev Grossman, but the first few episodes weren't that great. And then it started to get really good. And we'll be talking about that and hopefully having our interview segment uh, next month with the magicians. Right. And then the Shannara Chronicles, which is an MTV offering, which again, I've read a few articles about it, haven't seen it. 
Yeah. So interesting spread in that category, fantasy TV, because you've got things all over the map, some obscure, some not so obscure, and some that don't even fit like the Muppets. So don't you think that Game of Thrones is going to run away with it? <laughs> I, I do. I do. Absolutely. All right. Now, best action thriller TV series, Bates Motel, which I don't watch. Blind Spot, which I did watch the first four episodes. Did you see any of those? I got up to around episode seven. Okay. And it was in our family viewing for a while. Okay. So Lady Sith, Jamie Alexander. Yeah, pretty good. Wakes up in a bag in the middle of a, I guess, is it New York? Times Square. Yeah. Times Square. She's naked, has no memory of how she got there, who she is, and finds her body is now covered with tattoos that she didn't have before. And the tattoos lead them towards investigations of the week. <laughs> exactly. So it's pretty good. I liked it. Again, I, some things just fall by the wayside. I certainly could see going back to it at some point. Now, Fargo, I've heard a lot of good things about. I certainly saw the movie, but haven't seen the TV show. Oh, I love Fargo. I mean, Coen Brothers, anything that they do, I love. But the TV show has been a particularly effective adaptation. It really sticks to the spirit of the original movie. Okay. Now, Hannibal obviously has a huge cult following. It, of course, got canceled after, what, season three, I believe? Unfortunately, yeah. I think it was just really hitting its stride when it got canceled, just was a victim of ratings. Okay. The Last Ship, which I just have had my fill of virus. Uh, I don't get it. See? And the the librarians is also in this category. Why are these not in the science fiction category? (laughs) I don't get it. Last Ship, to me, is science fiction. Okay. Uh, The Librarians, which I do watch, and it's one of the most fun shows out there. I love it. But to me, the show that should run away with it, and if prior knowledge is any experience, it will, is Mr. Robot. Oh, no question. That was my favorite of the summer, 2015, and it deserves every accolade it gets. Yeah, it's the show I've been recommending to everybody. Now, best superhero adaptation series, we've got Arrow, Legends of Tomorrow, The Flash, Gotham, Marvel's Agent Carter, Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and Supergirl. I've seen all of them. Are there any left when you (laughs) include all those? No, probably not. (laughs) Now, for me, Gotham, I just thought was stupid, and I stopped watching it after about two or three episodes, so... Obviously, I'm not a big fan of Legends of Tomorrow. Surprise, surprise from this <laughs> podcast. So we're left with Arrow, The Flash. Of those two, I think The Flash has overtaken Arrow. I don't know about you. No, I totally agree. I think that Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. would have to be my personal favorite, but I have to be realistic and give it to The Flash. Oh, see, I'm going to go with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, the other two, Agent Carter and Supergirl, again, fun shows. We podcasted Agent Carter, had a lot of fun with it, but if we weren't podcasting it, I'm not sure I would watch it. Interesting. So I'm going with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., you're going with The Flash. Okay. All right. Best horror TV series, which is going to be tough because I'm not a big horror fan. (laughs) American Horror Story Hotel, Ash versus the Evil Dead. Wayne made me watch Evil Dead 2 on (laughs) Sci-Fi TV Rewatch, so no. Fear the Walking Dead and The Walking Dead. I know I'm in the vast majority. I don't get it. Well, but with the Fear of the Walking Dead, even just those two, Fear of the Walking Dead and The Walking Dead, there's no comparison. The Walking Dead is far and above the better of the two. And the other ones on this list, I don't think can measure up to The Walking Dead either. No, Salem, Teen Wolf, although I hear a lot of good things about Teen Wolf, but 
it's against the juggernaut that is the walking dead and then the strain which again another one of these virus kills everything sci-fi storylines another carlton q's property and i actually did watch season one it was good but yeah i don't think it can measure up all right so best supporting tv actor richard armitage hannibal nah vincent (laughs) d'onofrio daredevil didn't like the pilot Kit Harrington, Game of Thrones. Well, he is Jon Snow after all. <laughs> yeah. uh, Toby Jones, Wayward Pines. Lance Reddick, Bosch. Patrick Wilson, Fargo. David Tennant, Marvel's Jessica Jones. He is really creepy in that. But Eric Knudsen, Continuum. And, and look, Michael, obviously some of the listeners know us from our Liberated Continuum podcast. To call Eric Knudsen a supporting actor is almost not fair. Yeah, what the heck is he doing in that category? It's Victor Webster and Eric Munson, along with Rachel Nichols, and those three have always been billed as the stars. Yeah, so he's not going to win. No. But I'm not saying he shouldn't. Yeah, just glad to see them in here. Continuum has three nominations. Very happy to see them in this. But yeah, got to give it to David Tennant on this one. Okay, Best Supporting TV Actress, Gillian Anderson and Hannibal. Gillian Anderson. Uh, (laughs) Toga Felch. Walking Dead, Callista Flockhart, Supergirl. She is just hilarious in that show. Dana Gira, Walking Dead, Lena Headey, Game of Thrones. I mean, Sarah Connor, what else do I need to say? (laughs) Melissa Leo, Wayward Pines, and Melissa McBride, Walking Dead. So three Walking Dead actresses. I mean, and not really having watched The Walking Dead, I can't really predict whether one of those three will win, but it seems likely. Okay. Best TV actress, Jillian Anderson. X-Files, Katrona Balf, Outlander, Melissa Benoit, Supergirl, Kim Dickens, Fear the Walking Dead, Rachel Nichols, Continuum, Yay, <laughs> Kristen Ritter, Marvel's Jessica Jones, Rebecca Romine, The Librarians. Look, again, we're partial to Rachel Nichols. Kristen Ritter's is phenomenal in Jessica Jones. Yeah, she deserves that. We love you, Jillian Anderson. We love you, Rachel Nichols. <laughs> hey, I even like Melissa Benoist on Supergirl, but they can't really match the wonderful performance put in by Kristen Ritter. Yeah. And then best TV actor, Bruce Campbell, Ash versus the evil dead, Charlie Cox, daredevil, Matt Dillon, wayward pines, David Duchovny, the X-Files, Grant Gustin, flash, Sam Hugan, outlander, Andrew Lincoln, the walking dead and Mads Mickelson, Hannibal. Ooh, that is a tough field. What do you think? Mulder, man. Come on. (laughs) I had to go with Mulder. And then uh, lastly, best science fiction TV series. Save the best for last. The Hundred. Ooh. Colony. Oh, gosh. Continuum. Doctor Who. The Expanse. Wayward Pines, which is the only one I haven't seen. And The X-Files. I have seen The Wayward Pines, and it is quite good. But I think that actually is the lowest on the list. And that's saying something, because Wayward Pines is quite good. Wow, what a field. Yeah. Uh, I want to give it to Continuum. Uh, You know, Continuum, the 100, uh, would probably be my top two. Because I didn't go with Eric or Rachel, I'm going to have to, just for the sake of (laughs) keeping our audience, giving that one to Continuum. I'm hoping against hope. Yeah, but uh, really some good stuff. And it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out. I think certainly from our experience with the Saturn Awards, it's a lot less political than the Academy Awards. Let's just say that. Yeah, I've always enjoyed following it uh, since we started podcasting in 2012. We always take a look at it. 
always enjoy seeing Continuum on the list every year. <laughs> and I think that's uh, why we always hope for more accolades for that show. But yeah, there's a lot of stuff coming out for science fiction lovers out there. The fact that these fields are filled with great shows and some even have to be left out, it tells you how many shows are out there now for people who like science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Great yeah. to see. Yeah, and if you're like me, you probably have to make up a schedule of what you're watching on what night, and thank God for the weekends. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're not kidding. But just a small offering. Maybe one of those shows will show up in our discussion here on Sci-Fi Fidelity, but that's going to be it for this edition. We hope you enjoyed our discussion this month. You can keep it going all month long by following us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter as Sci-Fi Fidelity. And in April, we're going to be discussing Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. as it picks up the back half of its season. And we're leaning towards taking a look at the Winona Earp pilot on Sci-Fi. But in the meantime, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you access it. We're on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Plus, we do take suggestions for future topics. No one has taken us up on that, but we definitely do take suggestions. You just have to email us at scififidelity at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next month. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 